like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church this morning. We're glad you've chosen to worship with us here. Now, there are lots of reasons that people might say they don't believe in God. And some of those reasons are probably a little bit better than others. But let's look at a few of them together right now. You might have heard the response that organized religion is bad. The institutional church has been a source of suffering. It's been a source of corruption. It's been a source of injustice. And the church has held views and has oppressed people groups throughout history. Religion is the cause of more war and more death than anything else in all of human history. Therefore, I don't believe in God. Maybe you've heard someone say, well, you know, it's impossible to be an enlightened and intellectual and modern person and believe in God because the science and Bible just don't match up. So if I have to choose one, then I choose science. Therefore, I don't believe in God. Maybe someone says they don't believe in God because of some type of personal pain they've been subjected to. There's been physical or emotional or spiritual abuse by Christians or by Christian leaders. And so that leads the person to say, I no longer believe in God. But to be honest, these really aren't the best reasons out there to not believe in God. Now, hear me out on this. The claim that religion is the cause of more war and more death than anything out, anything else throughout all of history is a claim that has been disproven over and over again. If you look at the history of wars that have happened and while the church has certainly made its fair share of mistakes and made its fair share of blunders, I would like to think that the church is more more known for its serving the poor and serving widows and serving those who are oppressed Rather than pain and violence, the claim that science and faith are mutually exclusive and you have to choose one or the other. That's a false choice. There are multiple organizations out there that solely exist to show that one can be a firm orthodox believer in scripture and believer in Christ as savior and Lord. And yet still be dedicated to good, solid, up to date science. And while I don't mean to in any way trivialize the pain that people have felt through the abuse of Christians or the abuse of Christian leaders, I can't fathom what kind of pain that must be. But really, under scrutiny, to say that you don't believe in God entirely because of the actions of one person or five people or even ten people, it just doesn't really seem to make sense. Now, that being said, there are some reasons for rejecting God that may be a little stronger than those. And one of the reasons that people sometimes do not believe in God that is a bit more formidable, that is a little bit harder for Christians to give some nice canned response to is the problem of suffering, the problem of pain. It's a question that has troubled Christians for centuries, non-Christians for centuries, theologians, scholars, lay people, you name it. And the question is often presented in this type of form. If there really is a God, how can there be so much evil in the world? In 2002, two men known as the D.C. Snipers terrorized the United States. They went throughout several different states. And by the time it was all said and done over the course of a couple months, 16 people were killed. Nine people were wounded and it caused hysteria throughout the country. People were scared to go pump gas because people were shot pumping gas. People were shot changing their tires. 
One person was shot on a golf course. Another person was shot while they were sitting on a bench reading a book. We read about stories like ISIS. This past week, reports came out that ISIS crucified a 17-year-old boy. We hear stories like in 2010, where in Central Park, a woman was posing for a picture with her six-month-old child, and a tree branch fell and hit her. The woman survived, but the child died. We see things like this happen. We read the news. We see the pain and suffering and senseless evil that exists in the world. And we often can't help but ask that question. How can this evil and pain and violence exist if God is really all powerful, if God is really all good? And that question has caused many, many people to reject the idea of God entirely. So we as followers of Christ... How do we respond to that question when someone who doesn't believe in God or has no place for faith or no place for religion comes to us with that question? What are we supposed to say? And how do we as followers of Christ stand firm in our faith when we see the same things and we might be tempted to doubt and wrestle with the idea of God as well? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we finish our Come to the Table series. We've been looking at different meals throughout Scripture and the themes that often correspond with these meals. And we'll be finishing up today in Revelation chapter 19. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to Revelation 19 verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, use one of ours underneath our chairs. And if you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. But let's pray together and then we'll get started in the book of Revelation. Father, we look around us and we see things that just seem unexplainable. Suffering and violence and evil and pain. And God, sometimes it happens at a distance and we don't really think much of it. And sometimes it happens right on our doorstep. And God, when these things happen, when loss happens, when tragedy occurs and we just can't make any sense of it at all. We are so often tempted to doubt, so often to lose heart, so often tempted to despair. But God, I pray that as we wrestle with that question, as we look at the book of Revelation this morning, we can find hope that evil and pain and suffering don't have the last say. God, we love you. We praise you. Speak to us this morning, however you see fit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we get started in the book of Revelation, we need to get a couple things out on the table. Number one, Revelation is a really, really, really weird book. It's a weird book. Many people don't even bother reading the book of Revelation because it's so bizarre. It's so confusing. They have no idea what it really means, what it's all about. What does this mean? And what does that mean? And what does that mean? And so people avoid it entirely, wondering why should we even bother reading this book if it makes no sense to us. Other people often find themselves obsessing over the book of Revelation, and they can often miss the point entirely when it's all said in the end. Some people read the book of Revelation and reduce it to nothing more than a roadmap of future events. 
And so these people will open the book of Revelation and pick apart this thing and this thing and this thing. And they'll say, well, this means this and this means that. And this is going to happen here. And then if you divide it by 12, that's when Jesus is going to come back because of so many tribes of Israel there were. And all kinds of crazy, crazy stuff happens with the book of Revelation. Some people read the book of Revelation and act like it's some code book of secrets about if we read the book of Revelation, if we understand it correctly, then that will lead us to this opinion of the war in the Middle East. Or that will lead us to this opinion of who we should vote for. Sometimes we read it like that. Sometimes we read it and we find ways to read it and give our money to books and give our money to movies at Star None other than Nicolas Cage, the greatest actor who has ever lived. Take that as you will. And while Revelation is certainly a unique book, it is different. It is out there. It can be a little bit weird at times. And it is unlike any other book of the Bible. It doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be intimidating. And we as followers of Christ today, we can actually read the book of Revelation And get some good things out of it. And we can learn from it and help us as followers of Jesus. Now, the book of Revelation is written by John. Some people debate whether or not this is John, one of Jesus's original followers, the guy who wrote the gospel of John. Some people wonder if it's a different John. Really, it doesn't matter. It's completely safe to say that this is John, one of Jesus's original 12 disciples. That's the traditional understanding of the church. There's nothing wrong with sticking with that. It's written around 95 A.D. from the island of Patmos, where this guy, John, has been exiled because of his faith in Christ, because of his teaching of Christ. And as he's sitting on this island one day, he receives this vision An angel often directs him throughout the course of this vision, explaining things and comforting him and encouraging him as he sees some incredible stuff. And this book is written to multiple churches. In the first few chapters, we see these letters to seven seven different churches. And these are churches that know a thing or two about that problem we just talked about, that problem of pain, that problem of suffering, that problem of violence, because they have faced persecution themselves. This is not too far removed from a Roman emperor named Nero. And Nero was considered the first true persecutor of Christians in all of history. For a while, Christians existed in Rome and things went okay. They kind of minded their own business. People, for the most part, left them alone as long as they weren't doing anything crazy. But then Nero comes around and Nero is the source of violence and pain and persecution. And so for these churches to receive a letter like Revelation, there's a reason they're receiving it. Now, Revelation is unique in the sense that it is what's called an apocalyptic letter. It addresses issues like the end of the world. It addresses issues like good versus evil. It addresses issues like the current age versus the age to come. That is definitely true of this book. The book is also prophetic. Now, sometimes we hear that word prophetic and we immediately think, oh, well, it must be telling us things about the future. Well, prophets do that, but that's not all they do. Prophets were just as known for critiquing the culture or calling out systems of oppression or injustice or specifically critiquing God's people. When they had fallen away from him, when they had rebelled in sin, the prophet would come and he would call them out. On their rebellion and call them out on their sin. 
So while Revelation is a prophetic book in the sense that there are some things in here that seem to be an idea of what will happen in the future, that's not all it's about. And then finally, Revelation is very much a letter. It's written to specific people in a specific time, dealing with specific issues. But that doesn't mean that we can't read it and be taught and be encouraged and be challenged as followers of Jesus this morning in Fishers, Indiana in 2014. So now that we have that out on the table, let's read Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So in these first five verses, we open up with this big celebration. There's this big celebration that John is witnessing, but it's kind of a weird celebration. It's kind of awkward. It's kind of strange. They're talking about how a prostitute has been judged, something about Babylon, about how blood has been avenged and smoke is coming up from this city forever. That's kind of a unique party, kind of a unique celebration. So what exactly are they talking about? Well, when they talk about this idea of a prostitute or this idea of Babylon, they could be referring to what we talked about a few seconds ago. They could be referring to Rome. This source of evil, this source of pain, just like Babylon was a really, really, really long time before. Babylon forced God's people to suffer. And now Rome is doing the exact same thing. But then on top of that, they could be referring to a more generic idea of evil and pain and death and suffering in general. So that's what they're talking about. But what are they celebrating? Well, they're celebrating the fact that this evil and pain and suffering and death, those things are defeated. Christians have suffered under these things for so long. And John is telling them, don't worry. This suffering will not last forever. And one day you're not going to have to suffer anymore. One day, God's people are no longer going to be subjected to evil, are no longer going to be persecuted, are no longer going to be hurt because evil will be judged. And Revelation is very much a book about judgment. Now, we hear that word in today's culture. We bristle because that sounds cruel. That sounds harsh. That sounds scary. Judgment is bad. And yet that's very much what Revelation talks about. In chapter 6 through 18, we see this idea of judgment in the form of seals, in the form of angels, in the form of bowls being poured out. And it's all leading to this idea that judgment will come upon evil, that it will come upon those who commit acts of injustice. Judgment will come upon those who commit acts of oppression. Judgment will come upon those who cause pain. Judgment will come upon everyone. But the question is, do you know Christ? Have you been saved by the blood of the lamb? 
Let's look in at Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So Revelation is a book about judgment, but we also see that Revelation is a book about hope. We see the marriage supper of the lamb, that lamb being Jesus, like we sang about in several of our songs this morning. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about marriage suppers, how back then a marriage was a big deal. A marriage could be a week-long celebration. There was endless food. There was endless wine. There was partying. The bride and groom were treated like kings and queens. Marriages are a big deal. And yet John sees this vision of this marriage supper of the Lamb. Now at this point, Jesus has already lived a sinless life. He's died a sacrificial death on the cross. He ascended from the grave. He's ascended to be with God in glory. But in the book of Revelation, we see that all of those things that have already happened, they're truly coming into fruition in every phase of life. As Joshua mentioned in his communion meditation, Jesus has died and we have been saved. Those who submit themselves to the blood of the lamb, we have hope in eternity. And yet we look around and it doesn't really seem like there's a whole lot of hope outside of that. We still see suffering. We still see violence. We still see pain. It often still affects us. And yet there's a promise here that those who hold to the testimony of the lamb, those who are invited to this marriage supper of the lamb, that suffering and pain won't last forever. That suffering and pain won't have the final say, even though it looks like it's winning right now. Even though it looks intimidating right now, even though that evil wins some battles right now, it won't last forever. So those who have been invited to the marriage supper of the lamb, those who hold the testimony of Jesus in verse 10, those people know that evil and pain and suffering don't have the final say. And that's a source of hope. Look at verses 11 through 16 of chapter 19. Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
So that celebration in verses 6 through 10, that celebration is not in vain. It's not premature because Jesus truly is victorious. He rides on this white horse. He wears a robe dipped in blood. But the robe dipped in blood, that's kind of interesting because the battle doesn't really start until verses 17 through 21. There hasn't been any fighting yet. And yet Jesus's robe has blood on it. Why would that be? Jesus is victorious over evil and death and pain and suffering by his own blood, by the blood that is already shed. We are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb because of the blood that he already shed for us. He is victorious. Revelation is a book about hope. Just the same way it's a book about judgment. Now, the third thing, Revelation is a book about perseverance. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, John refers to himself as partner in the patient endurance in Jesus. Patient endurance in Jesus. And again, these churches would understand a thing or two about patient endurance. Because things aren't exactly perfect for them. Facing persecution and facing violence. And they know for sure, they know from experience that holding to the testimony of Jesus in the face of pain is not easy. But early in the book, in those letters to seven different churches, there's a promise given. A promise of salvation. And it's given to the one who conquers. Over and over again, we see that phrase, the one who conquers, the one who conquers, the one who conquers. But here's the thing. We can't conquer We can't endure. We can't persevere on our own. We persevere by the grace of God. We endure because we have hope for the future. We stand strong because God has given us the Holy Spirit. And we can conquer because of what Jesus has already done. No matter what kind of persecution, no matter what kind of pain, no matter what kind of sickness comes our way. We have that promise. We have that hope from this book. Now, if you don't know this about me, every Wednesday I eat lunch at Chick-fil-A. That is my routine every single Wednesday. If you mess up my routine, I will kill you because I love my routine. I love going there. And every single week I take my Bible. I've already done my sermon study for the week. I take a notebook and I start outlining my sermon, trying to get an idea of what the main points are going to be and what passages I'm going to read and what passages I'm not going to read and try to put some type of order together for how I'm going to preach this sermon. And since I've been doing this every single Wednesday for at least a year, the people there know me pretty well. I walk in there, they know my name, they usually know my order. I usually try to sit in pretty much the same place every single week. And a few of them will come up to me every week and they'll say, so what are you preaching on this week? And it's usually a good test for me to say, all right, can I sum up my sermon in 15 words or less? So I try to do that. And this week, as this lady asked me, so what are you preaching on this week? My main point was Christians can endure in the face of pain and suffering and evil because of our hope for a future reunion. That was my point. And when I told her that, she immediately jumped into a story about the things that she has been through in her life. This woman is 75 years old. She is the mother of six, but she lost a child a long time ago. That's a pain that not all of us can relate to. 
She's also a cancer survivor. That's a pain that not all of us can relate to. It meant a lot to me because my mom's a cancer survivor. My grandfather has been given six months to live with spinal cancer. And so when she said that, that kind of struck a nerve with me. But she talked about going to these cancer benefits, going to these events where cancer survivors or people who are going through cancer at that moment will get together and they'll share their stories and they'll try to encourage one another and things like that. But she said that often when she goes to these things, she leaves discouraged, even though she's a cancer survivor. And the reason she often leaves discouraged is because she says she meets so many people. Dealing with cancer, dealing with that suffering, dealing with that sickness and pain. And she said, yet so many of them don't have hope. So many of them have said, yeah, I'm fighting cancer, but I really don't know why. I really don't know why I'm trying so hard to survive. What's the point in the end? So many of them are discouraged by their cancer. And yet she indicated the only reason she was able to remotely endure during her battle with cancer was through her faith, was through her hope in Christ, was through her hope in a future reunion with God, was through her hope in the testimony of the Lamb, was through her hope in the blood that was shed for her. Now, people die of cancer. My grandfather will probably die. From cancer. I could die from cancer. Any one of us could experience suffering and pain and hardship. We might think that it will never affect us, and yet so often it does. But the truth is that we do have hope. Of course, it's easy for me to say that as somebody who's not going through it right now. But Scripture does say that. That suffering and pain and cancer don't win in the end. There are very few promises we can give to people dealing with that kind of thing. But this is one of the few that we can give. So, Revelation is a book about judgment. Revelation is a book about hope. Revelation is a book about perseverance. But finally, and maybe more than anything, Revelation is a book about reunion. Now, in the first week of this sermon series, our big theme was separation. And today our big theme is reunion. So we've kind of come full circle with this sermon series. In the first week, we talked about Genesis chapter 3, how Adam and Eve's sin causes separation from God. God cast them out of his presence because of their rebellion. They're cast out of the Garden of Eden. They can no longer live in the presence of God the way they once did. But then we read in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Then jump forward to verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. The one who conquers. 
In Revelation 21, we see the climax of the book and really the climax of all of Scripture. We see heaven and earth reunited. All those things that Jesus said about on earth as it is in heaven, they really come to fruition. They really come true. We see God and man reunited. How God once cast man out of his presence, and yet now God once again is dwelling in their midst. There's no more crying or mourning. There's no more pain and disease and suffering. The separation has been once and for all truly broken in every sense of the idea. Look at Revelation 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We see no more temple because one can freely approach God. We see no more darkness. We see no more division. The gates are always open. That's crazy. You can't leave your gates open. Anyone can come in and take over your city. But here, there's no more fear. The people who get to see this are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who hold the testimony of the Lamb. Those who have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Those are the people that hope for reunion. And their hope is not in vain. You know, Revelation is about a lot of things. Judgment and hope and victory and perseverance. But again, more than anything, it's about this future reunion. Now, that question we talked about earlier, how can a good and all-powerful God exist when there is so much evil and pain in the world? Someone who asked that question was Job. Job lost everything, and God was behind all of it. God allowed it to happen, and Job couldn't understand why he lost his family, why he lost his home, why he lost his livestock, why he lost his friends, why he lost his reputation. He could not understand what he did to bring this kind of suffering upon him. And all throughout the book of Job, Job wants answers. Job wants an explanation. He wants to know why this has happened to him. And then at the very end of the book, Job finally gets a hearing with God. And God gives him an answer, but it's not really the answer that Job had hoped for. Essentially, God's answer to Job, I'm God and you're not. That's pretty much what Job gets. Not really the explanation he was probably looking for. And yet he worships God. You know, it's a hard question to answer. And nice, canned, theological answers really don't mean a whole lot to people who are suffering. Really don't mean a whole lot to people who are going through pain. Really don't mean a whole lot to people who are wrestling with this question of why does evil exist. It's not an easy question to answer. But here's what we can say with confidence. We can say that God can take 
pain and suffering and heartache and even evil and even violence. And he can use it for his glory in ways that we can't possibly understand. In ways that we can't possibly wrap our minds around. We can say that with confidence. And the other thing that we can say with confidence is that one day there will be a reunion. And those who know the Lamb, those who have been saved by the grace of God, they won't suffer anymore. This evil and death and pain won't have the final say. They might win some battles in this life, but they will not win the war. That has been guaranteed because of what Christ has already done. And we just wait for that moment when we truly see it everywhere we look. There will be a reunion one day. One day Christ's reign will be seen everywhere. One day there will be no more shootings. One day there will be no more terrorism. One day there will be no more senseless tragedy. One day there will be no more cancer. One day there will be a reunion. There will be a celebration. There will be a marriage supper. And those who look forward to it, those who are invited to it, are those who hold the testimony of Jesus. The one who conquers by the grace of God. The one who places their hope in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we look around. Sometimes we see things from a distance. Sometimes we read things in the newspaper. Sometimes we watch the news and we just can't understand how all of the tragedy and all of the evil and all of the pain, how in the world it's there if you're really there and if you're really all-powerful and if you're really all-good. And God, it's not easy to wrestle with that question. It's not easy to wrestle with that doubt, especially when that pain and suffering and evil is not seen from a distance, but rather it's seen right in front of us. When it affects the people that we care about, when it affects the people that we love, when it affects us. But God, I pray that as we read the book of Revelation, that we find hope. Not in anything that we've done, but in the fact that what you've already done has guaranteed that there will be a reunion in the future. And God, we anxiously and eagerly look forward to that. God, help us to endure when we're so often tempted to despair, when we're so often tempted to lose hope, when we're so often tempted to just give up. I pray that by your grace we can persevere and that we can find hope in what your Son has done. God, we love you. We praise you. We honor you. We give you all the glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There are two different times in the book of Revelation where we see an invitation of sorts. One is in Revelation chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. This is mainly focused towards Christians. In fact, it is focused towards Christians. It's in one of those letters to one of those churches. And what we read there to this church that has kind of fallen off the wagon, that's kind of lost their way a little bit, is we read this. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. 
If you're a follower of Christ this morning and you've completely lost hope, maybe you've fallen into sin, maybe you've fallen into rebellion, I pray that you will open the door, that Jesus might come in and eat with you, that you might truly place your hope in him, even though you've been so tempted to stray. We see another invitation in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. This one is not necessarily just limited to those who know Christ. This could be to anyone who's reading this book. And we read this. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. If you're a follower of Christ this morning and you find yourself Hopeless. Talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. Talk to one of them. Share your concerns. Share your doubts. Share your fears. They can be there for you. They can pray with you. If nothing else, they can listen to you. If you're not a follower of Christ, talk to one of them as well. And I pray that you will make that decision to truly place your hope in what Christ has done. To find hope for the future, no matter what it is that you're going through right now. Talk to one of those guys. They'd be happy to answer questions, happy to listen, happy to pray. I pray you'll take advantage of that.